My feeling is that if you write a book that has any power in it, it has the power to offend. And I don't want to write a book that has no power in it, so I have to run the risk of offending. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Katherine Patterson is one of America's most celebrated children's authors. She has written more than 40 books. She is one of just six writers who have won the prestigious Newbery Medal twice for Bridge to Terabithia in 1978 and Jacob Have I Loved in 1981. She has also won the National Book Award twice. In 2000, she was named a living legend by the Library of Congress. Patterson has written some of the most beloved and most banned books. Book banning has lately been enjoying a revival, as books are being pulled from library shelves in, quote, unprecedented numbers, according to the American Library Association. Patterson frequently writes about children confronting difficult issues. She is now 89, but shows little sign of slowing down. She recently published a new book, Birdie's Bargain, about a child with a parent heading off to fight in Iraq. She spoke to me from her home in Montpelier. Catherine Patterson, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much, David. It's a delight to be here. Your most famous book is Bridge to to Terabithia, which won the Newbery Award in 1978. It is also your most banned book, and at one point it rose to number eight on the American Library Association's 100 Most Banned Books list for the 1990s. Uh, you had another book on that list, The Great Gilly Hopkins, was number 20. Uh, and I can tell you, you were in very good company, but you were not winning the race to be the most banned because you were behind Maya Angelou, Mark Twain, and John Steinbeck. But you were banned more often than J.D. Salinger, Alice Walker, and Madonna. So why are your books getting banned, particularly The Bridge to Terabithia, which is such a beloved children's classic? Well, I've given different reasons for the banning. Uh, The first objection seemed to be about the language in the book. Um, One one, uh, letter writer said that she was never going to use it in her classroom because of the gutter and unholy language. And my son, John, all my children went to a more than 60% African-American high school, and they learned, and they had a very wide vocabulary and gutter and unholy language before they graduated. And my son, John said, I'll give her gutter and unholy language. And I said, no, you won't. Uh, but uh, the, the gutter and unholy language is that Jesse says Lord a lot, which is the way a lot of Southerners punctuate their sentences. And um, his father says hell when his best friend dies, which is absolutely appropriate. There's nothing more desolate, like desolation and and being outside of everything holy as profound grief. Uh, so I didn't worry too much about that. It was when I got blamed for incest in British Arabica, I began to get a little worried because I couldn't figure out the incest. I could figure out some of the other objections. 
And I said to a friend of mine, I don't, you know, where in the world they get the incest? And she said, Catherine, the brother and sister sleep in the same bedroom. And I said, don't they know any poor people? Uh, but anyhow, uh, my feeling is that if you write a book that has any power in it, it has the power to offend. And I don't want to write a book that has no power in it. So I have to run the risk of offending. What was your reaction upon learning that your books were banned for the first time? Were you, uh, were you surprised? Yes. <laughs> but um, I thought maybe some people wouldn't like them, but I didn't believe that they would go about. I mean, there was a man, a minister in Pennsylvania that was going from library to library to try to get the books out of the library in the whole uh, central part of Pennsylvania. And I thought, my dear, get a better job. <laughs> you know, uh, don't, don't fritter the way you're calling by trying to seek out my books. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, it's, it was just amazing to me that people were so fierce about their opposition. Well, let me ask, you know, when we hear about a book being banned, we don't really know what that means. You know, we think of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, where there are books being burned in the town square, but it's not really like that. So as somebody who has been the target of book banning, what does it mean to have your book banned? Well, it, well, it means um, because my books are often read in classrooms, uh, it means the school board says you can no longer read those books in the classroom and you must take them out of your library. Usually goes a real book banning goes as high as the school board. Mm -hmm. And I've had wonderful school boards. <laughs> there was a wonderful instance with great Gilly Hopkins where a member of the school board said, okay, before we take up this case, everybody on the board has to read the book, not just the passages that this person has given us to prove that it should be banned. And uh, so when they came back to the next meeting and everybody had read the book, they said, no, I think it'd be good for children to read this book. <laughs> well, that's they a loved... happy ending. But right now we're reading about school boards that are reading the books and are quite comfortable banning them or, yeah. you know, ministers or, or whatnot. Well, the um, problem here is that uh, we've let a certain very, they call themselves conservative. I don't like the word conservative applied to people like this. They're pretty radical. Um, and part of their um, determination to turn this country into what they feel is the right country is to start electing people to school boards. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to have a lot more book burning, banning, and people feel like it's already begun. But fortunately, I think I'm so passe and the books are so old, they're not going to worry about mine much. They'll worry about more current books that have more shocking details in them. Hmm. Um, 
one of the things that strikes me uh, is that in your life, religion has been a big part of your life. Your father was a minister, your parents were missionaries, but the book banning efforts are often led by people on the Christian right, for example. How do you square your own relationship? And this is a, you know, your you know the world of religion and the church well, and yet it is uh, it has been hunting you for some time. Yes, it's it's my fellow brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Your brethren. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, it was the religious people that made sure Jesus got killed. So uh, I don't want to compare myself, but I just want to say that very often it's those who are most religious, uh, not most, and you know, the whole premise of our Christian faith is the love of God, uh, not the hatred of God. And so it's very, very sad that hatred seems to be the most uh, visible quality hmm. of certain people who call themselves Christian. And, you know, Jesus said they'll know you're uh, by the way you love one another. <laughs> you, as I mentioned, your parents were Christian missionaries in China. You were born in China. Um, Talk a little bit about that. Missionaries have a controversial place in history in terms of colonialism. Yeah. How how were you received when you lived in China, and how do you reflect on that sort of checkered history of missionaries? Well, it's very interesting that it's the stereotype of the self-righteous white person going into destroy a civilization that we think of as missionaries, which is not as all, not at all uh, my parents. Uh, because my father felt that what you were doing was sharing the love of God. And so he did it in starting a boys school so that the children in that rural area could be educated. He when there was a flood, he and his best friend and co-worker, who was a Chinese pastor, went out into the flooded areas uh, on boats to take food to people who were huddled up on the little high points in the, in the area. Uh, when there was famine, he tried to get food. When there was sickness, he tried to get proper medical care and drugs for them, even though he was not a doctor at all. Uh, sometimes he was the one who had to dispense the, me the medicine because there was no doctor around. So he was doing the healing work that we looked to, that Jesus did, teaching and healing and uh, preaching, of course, yes. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing these things? Because this is what uh, God tells me to do. And this is what my Lord did when he was on the earth, and that is my mission. And uh, he was he was much beloved. Mm -hmm. 
you have said that you never wanted to become a writer. Why no. is that? Well, because I knew what good books were about, and I didn't want to be mediocre. So you had performance anxiety. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I still have it. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you're a reader... From the time you're three, <laughs> you you major in English literature in college. You know what good writing is, and you sit there. And I mean, the only way you can write is to send your critic on vacation. And I I discovered the only way I could write a book was to get up earlier than my critic, who is all you know always eager to tell me how dare I, and what that garbage <laughs> and you have to convince you know you have to know that the first draft is garbage and and still get through it because you can't revise anything you haven't written so you write the garbage and then you go back and try to turn it into something somebody might possibly want to read has that critic ever overwhelmed you and given you writer's block or whatever else it does? Well, I, I, you know, writer's block is such a, <clears throat> I, I don't want to call you, accuse you of using a cliche, but, <laughs> you know, the word is bandied about. I go to classrooms and, and fourth graders will say to me, what do you do when you get writer's block? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning they didn't get their homework in on time. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know what that means to a 10-year-old. <laughs> but uh, the, the, uh, what I, I try to say to people is I try not to, you know, when I'm stopped in the middle of something and don't know where to go next, I try not to think of it as a terminal disease, but a signal a symptom that something has gone wrong. And what I have to look at, you know, I have to diagnose the problem. Uh, and very often the way, the best way to be unblocked is just to go do something else. Not to fight it, but just let your subconscious take over. And, you know, very often by the next day, you figured out what the problem is. Uh, I, uh, Isaac Asimov, that nobody would ever think ever had writer's block, always <laughs> read once. He said that when he didn't know what was going to happen next, he just stopped writing and went to a B movie. He said, you can't go to a good movie because it engages your subconscious too much. You have to go to a bad movie or not good movie. And then by the time you get back, the problem well, it solves itself in your subconscious. You know, we we owe a lot to our subconscious, and I'm I'm very happy I have one uh, hmm. because I think that's where a lot of the the things get worked out. Sometimes in dreams, which are more on the surface of your subconscious, but sometimes you don't know where it came from, but then you understand what to do next. What do you do? when you need to clear your mind? What, what are your tricks to outsmart yourself and your inner critic? 
Well, I quit whatever I'm doing and do something more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it does not help to read a good book because like the good movies, uh, that just makes you feel worse. Uh, But, uh, you know, take a walk, play with the dog, take a nap, go to bed, uh, go talk to somebody, have a conversation, you know, get, just get out of your, your study and away from your desk for as long as it takes to shake it off. How do you conjure your characters? You, you, they seem to be people who you know so intimately, who you've been spending time with, you're inside their head, but how do they actually get created? Well, I don't feel like I create them. I feel like I get to know them, like you get to know a, a, any other person in your life. Uh, and sometimes like Mamie Trotter and the great Gilly Hopkins, this person just walks in fully formed and all you do is begin to describe them and try to get to know them better. Uh, with, um, but mostly, you know, you start with Gilly Hopkins, I started with a name, but I didn't have a person connected to it. I knew I knew after I read the token books that I was going to have a book, and one of the characters was going to be named Galadriel. I just and why remind, I, remind our audience what Great Gilly Hopkins is about, and also. I will have to ask you, since it is one of the top banned books as well, top uh, number 20, as I mentioned earlier, uh, why you think it got banned? It got banned because of the language, which is very mild. I mean, if I, if I had... Uh, Gilly is, a, is a, a foster child who's gone, been bounced from foster home to foster home because her mother... Uh, had her out of wedlock and was not able to be a mother when she was a child herself. And so left her in the care of the system. Uh, And she, of course, Gilly, like many foster children, have this dream of this parent who is going to be wonderful and like a fairy is going to come down and save save them. And, and of course, uh, her mother, Courtney was one of the flower children who read Tolkien, mm-hmm. <laughs> named her Galadriel. Uh, um, but she's always been known as Gilly, because uh, most people, including myself, aren't quite sure how to spell Galadriel. I've said Galadriel all these years and discovered that the English actually say Galadriel. Uh-huh. <laughs> what inspired you to write a book with um, such challenging issues, uh, fostering and children out of wedlock? Where did that come from? Well, uh, Gilly came because my husband and I were asked to be temporary foster parents. 
it was going to be just for a couple of weeks. And we had four children. I thought four children, six children, what's the big deal? And it was a huge deal. Uh, not just because the two boys who were brothers who hated each other uh, were a problem. I mean, they wouldn't have been in our care if there had been no problem. But uh, I realized the problem was deeper than just the boys. And I began to try to listen to what I was saying in my head, not aloud, but in my head. And I was saying things like, well, I can't deal with that. They're only going to be here for a few weeks. Or, thank God they're only going to be here for a few weeks. And when I realized what I was saying to myself, I thought, yeah, that's why crimes are committed and wars are fought, mm -hmm. because somebody thinks somebody else is disposable. And I was very ashamed of myself. And I thought, I'm going to write a book. How long and, did, did you have those young boys? Uh, as it turned out to be, it was between two and three months before they were put in permanent placement. And... Uh, <clears throat> So they were the inspiration for the great Gilly Hopkins. Yeah, 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 because I wanted to say something like, no one is disposable. But I wondered how I would feel if the world regarded me as disposable. And I thought, I'll, I'm going to be very angry. I would be very angry, which, of course, brought forth Gilly. But then... Later, I realized I'd put a second foster child in the story. And there's certainly a, a side of me that would have been William Ernest that would have wanted to hide in the shadows or behind Mamie Trotter's broad back. Hmm. You are the you have four children, is that correct? That's right. What was it like being a mother of four, which is an extremely busy life, uh, and also being a very busy and well-known author at the same time? People say, how do you balance it? And I said, balance? Balance? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, you should probably ask my children. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading a biography of another writer who shall remain nameless and after she died uh, and she her children were interviewed for this book uh, they weren't as nice about it as my children currently are <laughs> but one thing you know my my children never knew me when i wasn't a writer because i began writing my first book because the presbyterian church asked me to write the book a book, and that's how I started being a writer. Uh, uh, I was asked to do it before we had any children. And in the course of writing that book, and by the time it was published, I had three. 
uh, because I had four children in just over four years. Uh, wow. <laughs> and so, so my, my writing after the book that I was asked to write was sort of in five minute snatches. And this is why I'm, I'm so uh, hold, beholden to my subconscious because <laughs> you know, I, I felt like it was going. And I, I couldn't write when I was, should be on duty as a parent because my children would fall into the fire or run into the road when I was busy writing. <laughs> because I do have rather strong powers of concentration. So I knew that if anybody needed my attention, I, I couldn't be at the typewriter at, at my desk. And uh, so I, I wrote in just five minutes snatches. And then um, we, we would go to Lake George in the summertime. At first we rented this barn, which had no telephone, no TV, no nothing. And the kids would go down to the uh, YMCA campgrounds for the morning. And I got a lot of writing done then because nobody couldn't, nobody wanted to come up to the barn. It wasn't a nice place to visit. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no telephone. And so I, you know, I, I, I wrote most of Gilly Hopkins up there. Uh, yeah, the, the, the question is often asked uh, of people today, what is your superpower? What do you think <laughs> your superpower is? I don't, I don't have a superpower. I have faith in God. <laughs> That's my superpower. And it's not my faith either. It's God. It's grace. <laughs> are, are you, do you continue to be, are you a very religious person? Well, the word religious, you know, has bad connotation these days. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very, uh, faithful member of my congregation, First Presbyterian Church of Barry, Vermont, and I stayed in Vermont and live as close enough so I can still be a part of that congregation because it's a very wonderful, loving uh, group of people. Uh, and it's very nourishing to me spiritually. Hmm. Uh, does that make me very religious? I don't know. I went to two different seminaries. <laughs> I was raised on the Bible. Uh, you can label me however you like. You are known among many things for some of the difficult issues that you address in your children's book. And I, <laughs> I want to talk about your latest book, Birdie's Bargain, about a child whose father goes off to fight in a war in Iraq. What made you decide to take on that topic? David, I have this problem. I don't have any short stories, and I launch into the history of a book. It, it takes a while. Are you patient enough to hear? That's why it's the Vermont conversation and not the Vermont soundbite. So go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, I had the most incredible good fortune to fall on my feet when my first novel was taken for publication after going around various publishing houses for a couple of years, it landed at Thomas Y. Kroll. <clears throat> and it was handed over to a 
young <clears throat> editor. I mean, we were both in our 30s by this time, but she uh, was just coming off uh, parental leave. And uh, I was picked up out of the trash pile or the slush pile or whatever you want to call it, because I didn't have an agent. I didn't know anybody. I just was sending this manuscript around and around and being rejected. But it was taken to the editor who had just come back from Japan. I'd written a novel set in 12th century Japan for young people. And the other publishers had sense enough to know that that was not going to sell well. Uh, but Anne Benedouce had just come back from a trip to Japan, loved Japan, and thought, well, here's a writer who needs a chance. And people did it in the old days. They don't do it so much anymore. These wonderful editors who thought, well, this book may not sell well, but someday maybe this woman will write something that, that will. And besides, uh, young people in this country ought to know about Japan. So she handed it to Virginia Buckley, who was just coming off of leave. And Virginia and I worked together for 40 years. She unfortunately began to get Alzheimer's and had to stop editing. At the same time, my husband, who was had always been my first reader and was a a pretty good editor himself, because if I didn't do what he said was a problem, if I didn't work on that, then Virginia would pick up the same thing. <laughs> uh, so between the two of them, I had two very good editors for 40 years. And then Virginia could no longer edit. And my husband was very ill and had a terrible condition called multiple systems atrophy, where he was losing uh, system after system uh, control over them. So it was a terrible disease. And he died. And so my two supports were gone. And I thought, well, that's okay. I don't mind not writing again. I, I like to read. And I, I always wanted to read more than write. So I'll just read. But I went this summer of what? 2018, maybe it was, to England with a group from the Vermont College of Fine Arts, where I'm on the board of trustees. And I was sort of the guest lecturer on that trip. I, and I thought I shouldn't take part in the workshops and the nitty gritty because that wouldn't be fair to the other um, to the students. And the, the professors who were there said, no, 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 you'll be fine. Come on. And so I had to pretend I was writing a book because I was in a workshop on how to write a book. <laughs> and so this idea that I'd had my files and never been able to go anywhere about this little girl who makes a bargain. No, no. I had a picture. I, I hadn't gotten to the bargain part of the little girl standing in the middle of the street bawling your eyes out, watching a car go around the corner, and she's wearing a T-shirt that says, I heart Jesus. And I didn't know what in the world to do with that child. I mean, that's how sometimes a book comes as a picture in your mind that you have to 
figure out why this is happening. And then, so in the workshop, I, thought I was doing that, but one idea, as I often tell people, does not an idea make, does not a novel make. You have to have more than one idea to weave it into a, a novel. Are you going to get stopped on chapter three if you're that lucky? And then I remember myself as a child moving from place to place, shy, scared, weird. And there, in almost every place that I moved to as a child, there were some girl who was very unhappy with herself but who was like a bird of prey and would snatch me up and decide that I would be her one and only friend. And I would be in the clutches of this person that I did, was a little bit afraid of and didn't really like, but she was the only person once she got hold of me that would be my friend at all. So those were the two ideas that went into Bertie. Uh, one of those girls in my childhood was a pathological liar. And I tried so hard to believe her because she was the only friend I had and probably the only friend I was going to have as long as I lived in that place. Hmm. So in that workshop, I put these two stories together. And then I came home and of course I couldn't write it right away. Didn't have time for it to grow. <laughs> and then I broke my leg <laughs> and <laughs> ankle <laughs> in, in February. What made you decide to write about a soldier going, a child of a soldier heading off to Iraq specifically. Because well, I didn't is... know. I didn't know who was in that car and where they were going and leaving this child behind. And um, I tried various things. Were, were her parents going as short-term missionaries to Africa? That was one idea I tried, mm -hmm. and it didn't seem to work. And then I, I guess a lot of Vermont. Um, National Guard were being sent overseas. And I thought, yeah, because that would be so scary to a child. And actually, I, I had a wonderful interview with um, a woman who leads up, uh, heads up a group of women whose husbands uh, are in the military and have experienced this kind of, their families have gone through this kind of uh, anxiety and their children, of course. And so she interviewed me at length uh, last year, uh, which was a real privilege hmm. because she felt that somehow, even though I hadn't had, well, I had that, you know, during the war in China, my father would disappear for, uh, weeks and sometimes months at a time back across enemy lines. And we didn't know 
if he was okay or not. So I've had I've had that kind of anxiety, uh, wartime anxiety. Right. Well, let me ask you about another one of your books. Uh, in 2006, you wrote Bread and Roses 2 about mm -hmm. the famous 1912 Bread and Roses strike in the textile mills of Lawrence, Massachusetts. What made you decide to write about that? Uh, well, I was, you know, I'm not like a lot of my friends who are writers who have so many ideas, they'll never live long enough to write them. Uh, I'm always, I finish a book and I think, well, that was a great career while it lasted. Uh, because I think that's it. I'll never write another book. And my family just rolled their eyes. <laughs> but I was on the hunt for another book. And I was in the uh, Aldridge Library in Barrie. And I went up to the his history section, which used to be there. Now it's all been moved to the Historical Society. But there was a picture there of the children standing on the steps of the labor hall. And there was a caption that said the children uh, of Lawrence come to Barry. And I thought, what? And I thought, there's a story behind that picture. And it was like, you know, the story, picture of the child in the road. I knew that there was a, a story there that needed to be written. And so I began to research it. And it was absolutely fascinating to me, both the Lawrence strike part of it, the bread and famous, not famous enough bread and roses strike. And the time that the children spent came from Lawrence and Spittenberry, which was very, very interesting time. So I loved writing that book. That was just a joy to write because it was, I was dealing with such heroes, uh, both in Massachusetts and Vermont. Mm. I marvel at how you have used such a small place, Vermont, as a jumping off point to explore a much bigger world. Um, you are, you know, taking your readers on journeys to Japan and China and uh, in your other books, Cuba, Albania, all from inspirations you've had on the streets of Barry and Montpelier, Vermont. Yeah. Well, of course, I started writing when I lived uh, in Maryland. And then we moved to Norfolk and then we came to Barry. Uh, so I've sort of, you know, the place where I am uh, is very often a jumping off place. Uh, uh, of course, you know, Ch China and Japan are places that I lived in in my past, uh, but but Cuba and Albania, of course, I've never lived never lived in. I've never even visited Albania, uh, just um, or or uh, Kosovo. Uh, well, let's, but, let's talk about uh, that one. The day of the pelican, 
uh, mm. is a book you wrote about an Albanian refugee family who moves to Barrie. It was a Vermont Reads choice in 2010. Um, what was the inspiration for writing about this refugee family? Well, uh, the church in Barrie, of which I'm a member, sponsored a family from Kosovo. And um, uh, Steve Dale, who was a member of our church at that time, said to me, you know, you should write about uh, this family. And I said, well, you know, you can't just, people, other people try to give you ideas and it hardly ever works. Uh, but I was had been asked to do a newspaper serial. And I thought, well, I mean, there'd be a lot of, you know, a newspaper serial is, is three double space pages and every last page has to end in a cliffhanger. Uh, so that's, you know, pretty <laughs> terse and <laughs> writing. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, I'll do a newspaper serial on it. And, uh, but of course it took, as much research to do a newspaper serial as it did to write a book. And so after I'd written the serial, I thought, I think I'll just turn it into a book. <laughs> but, uh, and I, you know, of course I had the family there, but the parents didn't speak enough English to help me. And I, and I, I'm, you know, asking children about memories of, of, uh, and children remember things very differently. You know, I, I said, well, how about the refugee camp that you were in? And they said, well, to tell the truth, we just played soccer and had fun. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't see the refugee camp the way their parents did, I'm very sure. Uh, so, um, well, talk about uh, my Brigadista year. Um, say a little bit about, and, and this is about, uh, well, why don't you say what it's about? Well, it's about the absolutely amazing literacy campaign that uh, Fidel Castro instituted uh, in 1961. Uh, he took power at the beginning of 1960, I guess. It was. Yeah. Uh, or 59. 59, Anyhow, I think it was, yeah. In 1960, he address the United Nations. And he said, in one year, Cuba will become a literate nation. And everybody said, ha, 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 dictator boast, of course. Uh, he went back to Cuba and he called for volunteers. He said, if you can read and write, it's your obligation to teach someone else how to read and write, because we can't have a strong nation if we don't have a literate nation. Most dictators like to keep their <laughs> populace dumb, <laughs> but not Fidel. And uh, so he got uh, 700,000 volunteers. I mean, amazing number. And I think 180,000 of them were under or were between the ages of 12 and 18. There was one seven-year-old volunteer who was determined. And so they let her teach 
one of her neighbors. These are volunteers who are Cubans, or how many all, of them were foreigners? All Cuban, all Cuban. All Cubans. And they, these girls who have been so protected as girls in the Hispanic culture tend to be, leave their comfortable homes in the cities and go out into the mountains and rural areas and factories and live with the people, work with the people. And then at night, under huge lanterns donated by the Chinese, they teach them how to read and write. And at the end of the year, the United Nations observers declared Cuba the first fully literate nation in the Western Hemisphere. We're not there yet. Cuba is 99 point something percent literate today, and we are, I think, 84 percent and haven't moved for the last 10 years. How did you get on to the story of the Cuban literacy campaign? Uh, and well, I, was, uh, I have this friend in Cuba named Amelia. And Amelia is this outspoken, absolutely uh, grab you by the scruff of your neck person. And, and I met her through conference, international conference of the International Board of Books for Young People. And she doesn't speak English, but she said to me at one of these conferences, you must come to Cuba. She runs a conference in Cuba for Latin America, for literacy uh, teachers. And uh, so John and I went illegally <laughs> through Canada to Cuba. Uh, to her conference and spoke there and, of course, got to know uh, Amelia better and ride around in her Russian car that was <laughs> more rust than car. Uh, it was a wild, it was a wild and wonderful time. Uh, and uh, then uh, after John had died, uh, Amelia wrote and wanted me to come again. And that, by this time, we have a friend, Isabel, who is our mutual translator. And she wanted me to come again. So I was trying to figure out the talk that I was going to make on the opening night of the conference. And I was at the state house for another function and Mary Leahy was there. And Mary said, well, what are, you, what are you doing these days? And I said, oh, Mary, I'm going to Cuba in a couple of weeks. And I was just hoping that, that Pat would write me a, some kind of letter to take to these people because they have so much respect for Pat Leahy in Cuba. And, and it, it won't matter what else I say if, uh, if I take a letter from Pat and read it to them. And she said, Oh, I'm just so jealous. I've been wanting to go to Cuba for so long. And Pat goes all the time and I never get to go. And she said, uh, you know, I've when I started working with adult basic education, I based a lot of what I did as best I could on the Cuban literacy campaign of 1961. I said, the what? 
And she said, the literacy campaign. I said, tell me about the literacy campaign. I'm going to this literacy conference and I don't know anything about the literacy campaign. So she's, she said, well, read Jonathan Kozel's book on the campaign. And so I did that and I was just floored. Well, let me ask you, we're we're running short on time. Um, Catherine, you are uh, the ripe young age of 89. Um, I dare say most of your friends have probably retired from the work that they spent their life doing. They're Um, dying. (laughs) Why do you keep writing? Well, I don't mean to. It's just, you know, uh, then, then this book comes along that needs to be written. So <laughs> I write it. Uh, I mean, I'd rather just read, but there you go. What is your advice for younger writers who perhaps are just starting out or maybe even midlife writers who are still doing it, but look to you as an inspiration? What's your advice? Well, my son, David, he doesn't write on uh, novels. He writes uh, plays and screen plays. Uh, and when he was launching into his career as a writer, I said, okay, David, to be a writer, you need two things. You need talent, but you've got plenty of talent. I'm not worried about that. But you also need perseverance. And the world is full of people with talent but it's pretty short on people with perseverance. And if you have both, you'll probably succeed. I guess I should end then on finally, what issue or topic or book is burning inside you that we will soon be reading another Catherine Patterson book about? (laughs) I wish I knew. You'll be the first to know, David. (laughs) Okay. Well, Catherine Patterson, it has been a pleasure and an honor to spend the hour with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, David. It's been a delight. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.